Hanukon. 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 You're listening to Hanukon Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Hanukon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Paige Willett. This episode focuses on art and history. We'll hear from an Oklahoma folk musician and a stop-motion animation artist with new work on Netflix. The director of CPN's Cultural Heritage Center also discusses the history of the 1936 Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act. Stop-motion animator Nicole Emmons hit a career milestone in March when Netflix released a new children's show with a scene she filmed. Waffles and Mochi features the self-titled characters who travel the world learning about the history and uses of different foods. I worked in lighting for a long time and I've gotten to work as an animator on a lot of other people's productions, but to have something that I had such a creative hand in, like as a, as a creative person, um, that was just really, really thrilling and um, just kind of made me realize what the possibilities are. The show is full of color and imagination with puppets, fun songs, recipes, and celebrity guest appearances. Higher Ground Productions created the show as part of Michelle Obama's Partnership for a Healthier America. The former first lady makes appearances in each episode and teaches children how to cook using healthy, flavorful ingredients while celebrating dishes from different cultures. Emmons appreciates the message. I always love it when the projects I work on are in line with my values. And this is one thing that I was just like, it's not just the puppets and the animation, but, you know, the, the, the idea of, of making food fun, making healthy food fun for kids is really great. She animated a song as part of the episode titled Rice. The character Mochi discovers he's made of ice cream and a traditional Japanese rice cake. The musical number shows the fun of preparing a meal regardless of making a mess and showcases rice dishes worldwide. It's not a very long piece, but there's just a lot that goes into it. And especially on something this big, you want to make sure that you've got everything right. Comedian and musician Reggie Watts contributed to the scene as well. He did vocal and added his own part to that song, so he had a lot to do with it. And I'm a big fan of his, so it was really exciting to get to work on something with his vocal. Emmons worked with Higher Ground in March and April 2020 to finalize her idea and turned in a final cut at the end of June. She spent a couple of months animating it at her home in Oklahoma City. And you feel like a magician. I mean, in reality, you're here at 6 a.m. in your garage on the ground, you know, like, you know, and it's actually really hard it, to, to make it look realistic. But when you get, see the final piece, it always just looks fun and magic. To come up with the imagery, Emmons thought through a child's lens and tried to match how they see and understand the world. She bought more than 10 different kinds of rice at a local grocery store and placed them in jars for a few shots in the piece. I was thinking about the idea of like how you kind of get lost in these things as a kid and you don't really know what they are. And so just kind of the concept of them being lost in, in grandma's like food jars on the counter and, you know, how that would be if you were really tiny and you were kind of navigating through that and what it would look like. Mochi's small stature helped show children's perspectives as well. For feedback from the target audience, she watched the scene with her six-year-old niece. And she's watched it and she said, thank you for making that. Thank you for making that. I was like, oh my God. 
that's such a cool comment. I was like, you're welcome. Like, <laughs> In the episode, guest star and musician Common showed Mochi his family tree that includes ice cream and rice. Emmons connected with Mochi's quest to understand his heritage. The Malat, View, Navarre, and Lawton family descendant researches her ancestry and Potawatomi culture too. And then also thinking about how important rice has been to our people and how important rice has been to people all over the globe. You know, just realizing that that's like something that really ties us together um, as humans on planet Earth. Monomen, or wild rice, is a staple in Potawatomi cuisine, and Anishinaabe people across the Great Lakes region continue to harvest the traditional crop in the late summer and early fall. It's really delicious and it's really hearty, and so I've been getting a lot more into that. I think this show like made me start cooking more as well, <laughs> so it's kind of funny. I think it'll have an effect on adults that way, you know, because they make it so fun that it's like it's uh, definitely something that it can, you know, get different audiences of different ages kind of connected and engaged. Besides expanding her knowledge of other cuisines and her desire to explore her culture, the opportunity to animate for Waffles and Mochi brought her art to the biggest audience of her career. That was just like really, really satisfying and really thrilling and um, gave me a lot of hope. Like, okay, I don't have to just make little weird things on my own. <laughs> I can totally like be a part of the bigger picture. Emmons took her first stop-motion animation class in 1993. A childhood love for Rankin-Bass Christmas specials, such as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, pushed her to study it and puppetry at the California Institute of the Arts. Her most recent work with Higher Ground Productions and Netflix reaffirmed her choices and passion. I don't think I want to change careers or anything. I love, I love it. I just want to keep going. I keep learning more about it every, every production. Watch Waffles and Mochi on Netflix. Find Nicole Immens online at NicoleImmens.com and on Instagram at Nicole underscore Immens underscore animation. The Oklahoma Congressional Delegation spearheaded the passage of the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act in June 1936. It was drafted as an amendment to the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, which changed federal policies of allotment and assimilation to ones of self-determination and self-agency in regards to Native American communities. Oklahoma was originally left out of the IRA due to widespread allotment following land runs and the establishment of the area as a state. Citizen Potawatomi Nation Cultural Heritage Center Director Dr. Kelly Mosteller sat down with Hanukkah Podcast to discuss the act's history and lasting impacts. Everyone recognized that allotment didn't work. It did not create thriving Native communities that had assimilated easily. And, you know, it just, it, it didn't solve the quote-unquote Indian problem that the federal government was always grappling with. When John Collier took over, at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, he worked closely with Congress to pass this new piece of legislation known today as the IRA that was going to allow tribes to reorganize their governments and, and just have a lot more control over their daily lives. And Oklahoma was excluded from that. Oklahoma is, in this era, is often excluded from larger national federal Indian policies because they just didn't quite know what to do with us. And why is that? The argument that was being made at the time was they don't have any reservations. 
their reservations were all dissolved to pave the way for the creation of the state of Oklahoma. So they're all allotted Indians. They're all farming and, and do, living their lives. They were more concerned with what they were referring to as the reservation tribes, which were usually farther to the west. Of course, if you actually look at what was going on in Oklahoma, there was a lot of variation between the living conditions and the success of allotment for tribes in Oklahoma, but they were just sort of wholesale including us or excluding us. How did the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act come about? Collier actually worked with a senator from Oklahoma, Senator Thomas, to pass an amendment to the Indian Reorganization Act that was specific for Oklahoma. It's sometimes referred to as the Thomas Rogers Act, also known as the Indian Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act. And essentially what it did was take the same concepts that were in the IRA and applied them to Oklahoma, making some exclusions here and there. For example, the Osage opted out of certain portions of it, and they really were looking at, at what pieces made sense for us and which pieces didn't. In what ways are we still seeing it today? The legacy of the IRA, and I think the things that sort of impact us most in our modern era was that this was when tribes were given permission, if you will, to reconstitute our governments and to draft constitutions and bylaws. Uh, It is also why our government structure is set up the way it it is or it was. Um, Speaking of CPN specifically. CPN specifically, why we have a chairman and why we had a business committee and why it was really refer to in these very business organizational terms. If you actually look at the preamble of our constitution that we passed in 1938, it specifically says we are doing this as a provision of the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act. It really set us up to shift away from those really detrimental policies that had left us largely landless and with very little ability to petition for ourselves and to fight collectively for our rights as a community. So we're talking about the mid-1930s here. What pushed for that shift at the federal level? Why did things change? A lot of it was a change in administration um, for Native Americans who is in office at the federal level really matters. They push and shape our policies based on their agenda. So you have Roosevelt who came in. He elevated John Collier, who had been an employee at the Bureau of Indian Affairs for a long time, but he was moved into a position of leadership and really had been a strong advocate that allotment does not work. If you look, you have landless, starving tribal members all over the nation, Native communities. Also, you had the Great Depression. In times of chaos, in times of tragedy, people feel a little bit more comfortable giving a little bit more authority for big change at a federal level when there is chaos, when there is a lot of pressure to find answers. And so when Collier was able to come in, he had always been an advocate of this kind of reform, and the federal government went with it. For multiple reasons. One, you could argue that they were doing it because they recognized that 
something had to happen for tribal communities. You can also think of it as they also wanted to somewhat release themselves from the burden of being the caretakers, which is what they saw themselves as. So it, it was it was really just part of the re-streamlining of not only the federal government's relationship with the tribal community, but their concept of their relationship and obligation too. You know, not everyone was a huge fan of the Indian Reorganization Act. It was adopted and supported and embraced at various levels, depending on the needs of your tribal community. All in all, though, I think for CPN, we can see it as the beginning of a new era for us when we were able to make that constitution and really start to redevelop our tribal government and think about what it meant to govern ourselves. You just said that not everyone was a fan of the Indian Reorganization Act. And many tribes, too, specifically here in Oklahoma, it seems were wary of the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act. Uh, why did some tribes really, you know, go back and even want, you know, in additions and subtractions to it and everything before it finally passed and was done? Well, change is scary. And the federal government hadn't always had the best of intentions and didn't always follow through on its promises. And some of the things that were being proposed were really great for tribes that would benefit from having the ability to, to reform a new form of government and write a constitution and have the Secretary of the Interior have certain powers over purchasing land for them and putting that land into trust. And it, it, it reshaped some of those relationships. But some communities who were doing well under the current system did not want the rules to change for them. So the Osage is a good example. They opted out because of all of the oil revenues and royalties that they had and the, and the head rights. Changing that relationship could have put some of that in jeopardy for them. No tribal community is, is trying to put itself you know, in that position, especially when the national economics situation was as precarious as it was. Specifically, where was CPN during this time? You know, we were surviving. Um, a lot of our tribal members had piecemeal sold off or lost their allotment land. So we were, of course, allotted in 1872 and again in 1887. And then the reservation was opened up to the land run in 1891. And for the next few decades, our tribal members were living their lives, trying to farm, trying to run businesses. Some were moving about within the county, you know, moving perhaps off of their trust land into the city of Tecumseh or Shawnee in the 30s. More and more started moving away from Oklahoma, just like other Okies. They were moving to California. They were moving west for a new opportunity. And some families were able to hold on to their trust land. Others would sell it off wholesale. Others would slowly, over the decades, sell off a little bit at a time. Uh, we have records of people writing to the Indian agent saying, you know, my my kid had pneumonia last year and I can't pay the doctor's bills. I need to try to sell five acres. And But we really had no outlet. We had no uh, mechanism for which to gather and advocate for ourselves and represent ourselves. And so 
I really think that we were the kind of tribal community that really could benefit from this new organization of gathering ourselves together, writing this constitution, getting back to where we are thinking about and talking about ourselves as a collective, as a tribe, as a unit, and not being consistently pushed to only think about ourselves as the individual. That first constitution, it was not like it was a revolutionary document. The Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act, they basically presented everyone with a template. It was very narrow and not giving a whole lot of authority. You didn't really have the ability to amend it to sort of fit your more traditional forms of government. That's why it has a very corporate structure. And that's what the feds were comfortable with. Over the last, you know, approximately 85 years now since it was passed, did it feed tribal sovereignty as a whole here in the state? Yes, I think it has because once tribes had the mechanisms by which to fight for and protect their sovereignty in a way that the federal government was recognizing, it kind of knocked down some of those barriers. It is also significant to remember that that change at the federal level and just the idea was also significant, that the IRA and the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act were coming along with a new concept of what it meant for the federal government to interact with indigenous peoples. So you can't really separate those two things out. I think it set us down a path, but it has been our own initiatives that have continued to push our sovereignty forward. Find more CPN history, including information about treaties and other federal policies and their effect on the nation, at PottawatomieHeritage.com. And on this episode, we have a bit of a flashback with a clip from The Native American Speaks, a radio show from Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department and KGFF. It ran from 2006 to 2013 with host Michael Dotson, previous Public Information Department Director. In this clip, Dotson interviews CPN Greenmore family descendant and folk musician Carter Sampson in May 2013. I would describe her music as... Uh, folk with a vengeance, maybe. Yeah, I like. I, like I, I just made that that category up right like off the it. top of my head it's right now. <laughs> when did you learn that you have some musical talent, and how long after that was it that you decided, hey, I can be good enough, and I want to do this, and then you you took out after a dream. I don't know about realizing that I had talent, but from the minute I could open my mouth and walk. I was performing and <laughs> singing and dancing and um, just love that creative outlet and always have. Um, when I was 15, I started playing guitar. Uh, let's see, in the seventh grade, I auditioned for choir and I didn't make the cut. <laughs> and really, I think that that kind of sparked something within me and made me want to learn how to play guitar so I wouldn't have to rely on anyone else to make music, that I could do it solely on my own. Um, so I picked up the guitar. My dad taught me a few chords, and the rest I just 
kind of make up and still do to this day. I don't read music at all. It's mm -hmm. like the most difficult form of math to me, <laughs> but I feel it and I hear it. Um, so I immediately at 15 started playing guitar and writing songs and I've just been doing it every day, every day since then. I am turned 33 in June and I've kind of made this pact with myself that um, 33 is going to be my year. I think it's going to be the title of my new album. Um, and I bought this little RV and I'm just going to play every place that I possibly can. Because um, this is it. I can't come up with anything else to do. This is what truly makes me happy. Um, and there's not a day that goes by that I'm not so thankful that this is my job. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um. Did you find that, that maybe you had to make that commitment, that kind of a commitment, to become that uh, silly millimeter better so that you could pursue what you wanted to do as a career? Um, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been playing and writing and singing, and um, I've released three studio albums now and a couple of little live records before that. Um, and the whole time I was working in restaurants and bartending and waiting tables just so I could play music in my spare time. I always wanted it to be a full-time thing, and I just kept working on it. Maybe not the 8 to 10 hours a day of practicing, but, you know, I, I do everything on my own. I'm my own booking agent. I'm my own bus driver. I, I do everything on my own. So I would bet you're one strong woman as a result of that. <laughs> Well, I think that's just naturally because of the way I was raised. So Good. I'm lucky for that. Um, My daughter is a strong woman. I admire yeah. strong women. There are a lot of strong women here in Oklahoma. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so about a year ago, I was working at a restaurant in Fayetteville and just continuing to write and book and play as much as I could. And they said, uh, they, they called me one day and said, you haven't been here in two months. Could we take you off the schedule? And it was one of those things that's like this dream that I'd always wanted to play music for a living, but it just sort of happened like that. Like one day I was playing music and still waiting tables, and the next day it was like, oh no, this is it. The so now I got to make has it work. Been removed. Yes, exactly. But you know what? It just keeps getting better. Every every single day keeps getting better. I had a friend the other day say that if you do what you truly love for a living, you never work a day in your life, and that's that absolute truth what runs through my head right now is uh, a leon russell lyric something about being up on the tight wire all alone yeah that's from one of the songs on his carney album yeah. uh who are your musical influences by the way are are many of the great 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 oklahomans who have produced just some of the very best music of all time among Definitely. them or who, who do you like who whose style who's uh, whatever you have adopted. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up being toted around in the back of my mom's Volvo station wagon listening to Bonnie Raitt and Emmylou Harris, and they are still uh, right you can't go wrong. at the very tip-top of my list. Um, Bonnie Raitt may very well be the best slide guitarist ever born. Agreed. Agreed. Um, the Okies, though, man, it, to state the obvious, Woody Guthrie. I mean, man, what a songwriter, mm -hmm. and um, I just... Love playing his songs. Uh, Wanda Jackson. At like 90 million years old. It's making true. great, great music. I just got to meet her several months ago. And um, she's the you know, queen of rockabilly. And she was the sweetest, 
lady I've ever met. She kind of reminded me of my little grandmothers and held my hand the whole time and we, we talked. Mean little. And, yes. You're not <laughs> tall, and you yes. would have towered I did. over Wanda. I did. I'm also a big Patty Page fan. Ah, to, to go and, to the kind of and, different and, and side of that. Oklahoma native. Yeah, man, she she's got a voice. Definitely, uh, her Tennessee version Waltz. of Tennessee Waltz is one yes. of my favorite songs ever. You would describe yourself, I assume, as a folk singer. You yeah. had no you had no problem with my calling you a folk singer with a vengeance. I like that. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely have some Red Dirt influence just because of where I'm from, and um, I I do love some old country i think more than maybe the newer stuff there's some great music out there being played in country music today but um yeah i i've my influences come from from all over the place Good. it's kind of hard to pin it down to one specific i would assume you like <laughs> the word eclectic yes that's a good another good one <laughs> you're going into the studio tell me about that venture I feel really lucky a lot of the times, and um, I have a studio that's done my mastering on my last couple of projects out in Pennsylvania. Um, the mastering engineer there, his name is Garrett Haynes, and he grew up in Oklahoma. Um, and I, I got to go to the studio last summer and just really loved it. Something about the space and the people who were there, and I knew that for this next album, I want to do a completely solo record, just me and a guitar. My last few have been full band, and that's great. But a lot of the times when I play live, it's just me and a guitar. So um, he called several months ago and wanted to know if I would be interested in singing on a, uh, another man's record, a local guy from Pennsylvania, Ben Shannon, um, singing back up on his record. And I said, absolutely, but how am I going to get to Pennsylvania, and when is that going to happen? So... In the back of my mind for this new album, I'd kind of been planning on maybe starting to record it next January or February. Um, and uh, this artist, Ben Shannon in Pennsylvania, has, um, is flying me there to record on his record wow. and paying for my studio time in exchange for me singing on his album, which just blows my mind. It's so, so great that I have the opportunity um, to go do that, and I'm really excited about singing on his record, too. Talk about your songwriting process. What I'd like to say there is I read in one of my uh, readings of Rolling Stone two or mm -hmm. three or four years back a, a profile of uh, Neil Young. Yes. And he said that a lot of his songs just appear full-blown in his head. and He's nothing more than a conduit. There are some that he goes to in Panale on mm -hmm. and has to work on them and work out the rhymes and things like that and the... Uh, meter and all, but that in a lot of instances, his head is nothing more than a conduit. Yeah. How, how, how does that work for you? I, I kind of agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, it. I think for me, um, the most of a song just does kind of pour out like that, and I have books and journals full of half-written songs. I mean, probably hundreds of them. Um, but then after that all comes out, it's nice to go back to it, whether it's a week or a year later, and that song could even take a totally different direction after that time. Yeah. Thank you for provide, for producing good, fun, interesting music, and mm. thank you for being an interesting human being. <laughs> it's my honor. Thank you for having me.
In the years since this aired, Sampson has released several more albums and appeared on the Grand Casino Hotel and Resort's Emmy-winning Play It Loud music series. Following the coronavirus pandemic, she looks forward to touring again. Follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest. Simply search Carter Sampson. It's time for learning language when the CPN Language Department joins us to teach vocabulary, songs, stories, and more. Language Department Director Justin Neely now tells us a story about an old blind couple. But no, we a long time ago, there was a there was an older couple that that lived in the village, and this old couple, this Kiwazi, this old man, and this Mdumbolze, this old lady. Um, at, at some point, they started to lose their eyesight. They started to go blind. And the leaders in the village, they kind of got together and they had a meeting and they were trying to figure out something they could do for this couple because they were concerned that if a warring tribe were to attack the village, that they would certainly kill this Kiwazi and this Mdumbolze, these two elders. So they wanted to do something for them, something that would kind of keep them safe and protect them. So they got together and they had this meeting and they came up with this plan. And what they decided to do was take this elderly couple and build them a house like, uh, you know, 10, 15 miles away from the village, somewhere that if a neighboring party was to come in and attack the tribe, they would be far enough away that they would be safe. But at the same time, they would still be close enough to where, you know, once a week someone could come over and bring them supplies, bring them some fresh meats, some fresh, fresh vegetables and whatnot, and kind of keep an eye on them, make sure they were doing okay. And so they built them this, this beautiful house, and they lived in it for a while, this beautiful wigwam. A little bit of time passed, you know, several months, and then a year started kind of rolling by, and they were living real happy. I mean, every day they kind of had a natural routine they would do. Every morning, they would wake up, and the Mdemmose old lady would ask the old man, Kiwazi, Nadin Imbish, old man, go fetch some water. And so the old man, he would get up, he'd take his pail, in order to find the water, they had to tie a string from the wigwam down to the zebuas, down to the creek, so they could follow it down to find the water. So they would, he would follow this rope, he would go down, and then he would take that bucket and he would scoop up some water, and then turn back around and make his way back over the wigwam. And he would give the uh, demmose the water, and then she would take that water and she'd make him some breakfast. They, they would keep a fire going, and every day she'd cook them a meal, and they always shared everything. So she'd make a meal, and then she'd make a plate for herself and kind of you know, dish it out of, the, out, of the, out of the pot and make herself a plate and set it off to the side. And then she would get another plate, another dish, make that for the old man, give that to the old man. And that's what they would do. Every day they would have this meal, and they would split the food half and half. And they lived real happy for a long time. As I said before, several months, even years started to pass. They were really, it was kind of just like a nice little getaway. They were on their own little spot. And then once a week, someone from the tribe would come over and they would bring some fresh supplies, some fresh venison, some, some fresh suksi weas, deer meat. They'd bring some damen, some corn, some kojas suk, some beans, and, and other things, sugar gosh, some onions, so that they could have food to, to cook up and just kind of look after, make sure everything was going okay. Well, one day... 
there was an aspen that was walking, a raccoon that was walking through the woods. And he kind of looked down from up, kind of up high, looked down, and he saw the fire going and saw that wigwam and just kind of scratched his head a little bit. He couldn't quite understand what was going on. Why was this one wigwam just kind of sitting out here all by itself? So he was curious, so he came in a little closer, and, and it was morning time, and the old man had got up and was starting down towards the creek, and he kind of watched him, and there's that old man just kind of going down the rope, taking that bucket and scooping up some water and then turning back and going back to the wigwam. And he's the aspen, the raccoon's kind of scratching his head, like, what, what is he doing? It's very odd behavior. And so he kind of comes in a little closer and he, he, the old man hands the water kind of real carefully over to the old lady. She takes it and starts making some food and dishes up some food for the old man. She's taking it over to him. Of course, she can't, can't really see. She's just kind of moving around with her hand and kind of putting her hand out there. Okay, and hands him his plate and then goes over and finds hers and starts starts eating her food. And he's like, well, I'll be darned, they're blind. They can't see what's going on. So that aspen, that raccoon, he's he's kind of bored. So he thinks, I'm going to have a little fun with him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little trick on this this demose and this kiwazi, this old woman and this old man. So, next morning comes, just as every morning has come for the last several months, several years, same routine. They both wake up and the old lady says, Kiwazi, nodin imbish. Old man, fetch me some water. So he gets up, gets his bucket, and he starts down that rope. What the Kiwazi doesn't know is that before he had a chance to start down that rope, that Aspen had ran over there, grabbed that string, and took it back over here to some sand. So the old man, just like every day before, he kind of falls down that rope and he keeps going, keeps going, gets his bucket, dips it down. Uh-oh. Scared. Nah. Jeez. The river, the creek has dried up. What are we going to do? He was really worried because he realized that they had just come to check on him and bring him fresh supplies yesterday. So it was going to be like a week before somebody came out there and they had no water. They were going to perish. He was like, oh goodness. And so he grabbed, picked his bucket up and thought, I better get back up there and tell the old lady. He followed the string back, got up to the house and he tells him, Demose, Demose, the creek is dried up. And of course, Demose, the old lady is just looking at him like, you're just like, what? This is absurd. You're just being lazy. Stop being lazy. Here, give me the bucket. Give me the bucket. Get in here. I'll get water today if you want to be lazy. Go sit down. So they're arguing. She's got the bucket. While this is going on, that aspen runs over there, grabs that string he put over here in this pile of sand, runs it back, and puts it in the creek. So the old lady takes the bucket. She starts down that string, takes it, Dips it down. Dips it down. There's water. And she's just kind of like thinking to herself, this old man, he's just more and more. He's just that Kiwazi is just getting lazy. Just lazy. Doesn't want to do anything. Wants me to do all the work. So she heads back up the string, up to the house, gets there, takes a little bit of that water, throws it on the old man. Ah, ah, what's that? That's beesh, Kiwazi. That's water, old man. I don't know what you're talking about, the stream drying up. You're just being lazy. 
Gaggle yabyetsekin. Don't be lazy. He said, I don't know. I swear there wasn't no water. She's like, well, whatever. So she starts cooking their meal up. Put some of that water in the pot. And she's stirring it up. Threw some, some Chicago, some onions in there. Got a little bit of suxy weas, a little deer meat. Making them up a nice little stew. And then when the food's all done, geez damn get, it's all done. She takes it, gets her bowl and dips a little bit of that out. On a plate for herself, sits it over on the ground for it to cool, gets another dish and starts dipping it out. Kind of looks around, hands it to the old man, kind of works where it gets to her dish, picks it up, gets ready to eat. There's no food in it. Well, what she doesn't know is while she was dipping that food out, dishing that food out for the old man, taking it over him, that aspen, that raccoon, had ran into the wigwam, went over there, grabbed her dish, and ate it real fast. And then put it out and took off out the, out the wigwam. So now she's getting pretty hacked off. <sighs> so she's thinking, this is just ridiculous. So she starts working her way around the wigwam. She finds the old man and gives him a shove. Oh, what's that for? Kiwazi! You're lazy, and first off, you don't want to get any beach. You don't want to get any water from the ZB West from the creek. Okay, so I go and get the water. Then what do I have to do? I have to cook the food, too. I cook the food. I make us a delightful meal. I dish myself out of plate, set it there, dish you out of plate. What do you do? You eat my plate, too. Ridiculous. And he's just, she's just laying into that Kwesi, just giving him a heck, giving him a hard time. And he's like, oh, I swear I didn't do it. The raccoon's watching the distance. He is just having a heyday. He is loving it. He's just like, oh. Finally, he just can't contain himself anymore. Just busts out laughing. <laughs> That just starts rolling on the ground. He just can't take it any longer. And the old Demolzi, the old lady, they, and the old man, the old Kiwazi, he hear him and they think, uh-oh. Demolzi realizes that they've had a joke played on him. And she says to the Kiwazi, she says, you know, old man, I'm sorry. I should have believed you. I shouldn't have jumped to judgment. I'm sorry. And the Kwesi, the old man, said, you know, that's okay. That's okay. And that's the story of the old blind couple. Yo. For more information and opportunities with language, including self-paced classes, visit cpn.news backslash language. You can find an online dictionary at podwatomedictionary.com, as well as videos on YouTube. There are also Potawatomi courses on the language learning app, Memorize. Hanukkah Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Our director is Jennifer Bell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find what you listen to. We're also on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation and on Twitter at C underscore P underscore N. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A w-a-t-o-m-i dot org. Until next time, I'm Paige Willett. Miigwech nikanek, 
Bamamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.